0: Challenge what is expected of you? This world is not your home. You are different. The uh, forests of Siberia are notoriously scarcely populated, so you can imagine maybe uh, the shock of suddenly hearing the whir of chopper blades as they hover low over the forest. Now imagine how much more perplexing that thought is if the year is 1978 and you have no idea that such a thing as a helicopter even exists. You would have no idea what to make of this strange thing flying through the sky. But 1978, there's a team of geologists flying low over the Siberian forest and they are scanning uh, the mountainside looking for a place where they could drill test holes for oil. So they're looking for specific geographical features that might indicate that the, it would be a good spot to test drill. And as they're flying low over the, the mountainside, 150 miles from the nearest settlement. And that's 150 miles from the nearest settlement of any size, let alone a significant community. I mean, middle of nowhere. As they're scanning the hillsides, they spot this crudely built structure. We actually have a picture of it kind of built back into the hillside. And at first, it it almost looks like a conglomeration of trees that maybe fell down, but they looked and know it's unmistakably a dwelling. They set the chopper down at the first uh, available clearing where they felt like they could land safely, and they hiked back to where they found this structure, and they knocked on the door, and this man, the patriarch of the Lykov family, answered the door middle of nowhere. And he responds to this team of geologists. He says, well, you've made it this far. You might as well come in. So the geologists enter this uh, crudely built structure and they notice in the back three or four more people, except these people are, are absolutely terrified. And so the geologists step out the door and they just wait. They eat their lunch. A half an hour later, this family emerges, and what they discover is this was the dwelling of a family, the Lykov family, that had fled religious persecution in 1930 in Russia. They fled to the forest of Siberia. They had two young children at the time that they fled. They had two more that were born in Siberia that had never interacted with modern culture. And In fact, one of the things that the father was enamored by was cellophane. He'd never seen plastic wrap. And so one of the geologists opened like a snack cake or something. And he goes, what is that? It looks like glass and yet you can crumple it. And and the children, they'd never seen anything like a helicopter, didn't even know it existed. They were absolutely enamored with this metal bird that could fly through the sky. And the geologists, they they were all of Russian descent. They noticed something peculiar. The the two youngest daughters, they were adult age, but they were born in Siberia in this family, never having interacted with outside culture. They spoke their own unique dialect of Russian that only those two people in the entire world spoke. And what had happened is when this family fled as exiles from religious persecution, they, they built their own community. They established their own culture in the middle of nowhere, and no one knew they existed for over 40 years, as they eked out a living as exiles in the middle of nowhere. Now, here's why I tell you that story. Because Peter, in his letter, in 1 Peter, he writes to a group of believers, he says, who were scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This is modern-day Turkey. But listen to how Peter describes them. He describes them as foreigners and exiles, in, in verse 17, he describes them as strangers, living out their time in reverent fear. And so for Peter in his letter, he writes to the believers as exiles, as strangers, as people who, in other words, don't belong in the culture that they're living in. And, and I find that language that Peter uses striking. To be an exile is to say, I I am not a part of this culture. I've been displaced from my people. I've been displaced from what I know. And so here's the question that I want to wrestle with today. What does it look like for you and I to live as exiles and strangers and foreigners? What does that mean? Because as Peter writes his letter, as he finishes uh, writing this chapter one that we're going to look at today... He's laying out this argument for the believers of, you were exiles and strangers, so here's how you should live. Now, part of what I want to do this morning is I I want to talk about what it means to be an exile. So I'm, I'm going to put this on the screen for you because it's crucial to our understanding of what it means to live as strangers in exile. So think about your culture, your citizenship, and your context. We are in Brookings, South Dakota. We're in the United States of America. We have an idea of our our culture. We know our immediate context. Uh, You know where your citizenship is. And when you live in the culture that you know, your culture of origin, you, you understand how to function within that culture, right? You understand the idioms. You understand the turns of phrase. You understand how to greet one another. These are things that we just understand when we're living in the culture that we know. Now, what happens with exiles is there's something that takes place that, that moves them out of the, the culture that they know. And, and as exiles, they're forced into a new context and a new culture. This is what happened with the Lykov family. They were forced from uh, the community and the context they lived in, and they settled in Siberia, and they essentially, they established their own culture. But often as an exile, you were pushed into a new culture and a new context and a new community. Now what happens is, uh, if we could put that back up, is exiles bring their culture to a new context. So as an exile, you're pushed out of your home. You enter a new context in a new community. But as an exile, you don't leave your culture behind. You bring your culture with you. And the challenge is as an exile, you know your culture of origin. And now you have to figure out how do I live and function in this new culture that feels foreign to me? Here's why I tell you this. Here's what I think it means for us to live as exiles and strangers. To live as exiles and strangers is to live out the culture of heaven in the context of our current communities. See, when Peter describes them as exiles and strangers and foreigners, he's not telling them, don't care about your current context. He's not telling them, don't care about the culture that you're living in. And sometimes we take this language of our citizenship is in heaven, we're foreigners and strangers, and we take that to mean, well, I don't belong here. I'm going somewhere else. I can't wait to get there, so I'm not too worried about what's happening here. But Peter's going, no, 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 as exiles and strangers, you belong and are living to the culture and the principles of heaven, so live the culture of the kingdom in your current context and community. Live in a transformative way that models a new way of living and being in the world for people. Now, the challenge is, as exiles, in a new culture, in a new community, there's questions that we wrestle with. And I I think for Peter, he outlines these three questions. As you read the whole letter of 1 Peter, you'll notice these themes emerge. I think the early believers, as they are exiled in Roman culture, they're wrestling with this question of identity. Who am I? How do I live out my sense of identity in this culture that I'm in? And for many of the early believers, they risk being socially marginalized because they didn't fit within the culture of Rome. Secondly, I think as exiles, there's this question of values. What's important? What drives my life? Where do I find meaning and purpose and significance? And how do I live those values out? Because when you step into a new culture in a new context, but you're living according to the culture of the kingdom, right? You have values that are kingdom values that the culture and context that you're currently in may not value in the same way. And so as an exile, you're going, my identity is in the kingdom, but that puts me out of sync with the culture that I'm in. How do I live out the kingdom principles of the culture of heaven? I think, likewise, as exiles, they wrestle with this question of hope. When you've been displaced from your family of origin, you've been displaced from your culture of origin, there's this question of how do I find a way forward? Where's our hope? And so, as Peter writes this letter, he's addressing these questions in the lives of the believers. And he writes to encourage them about their identity in Christ. He writes to encourage them about the kingdom values that they should live according to. And he writes to remind them and encourage them about where their hope is rooted. Right? So that's our key question that I want to come back to again today. How do we live as exiles and strangers in the culture in which we're in? 1 Peter 1 verse 13 is where Peter begins to answer that question. 1 Peter 1 13. Therefore, uh, I know we didn't make it very far, but can we pause there? Right? The, the old adage, right? When you're reading scripture, when you see a therefore, you ask the question, what's it there for? Right? And, and that's important here because verse 13 signifies a significant shift in Peter's writing. It, it's a shift from theology to ethics. So what I mean by that is in the first half of 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter has been writing about what the believers believe about what the followers of Jesus Christ hold to. And he tells them things in verse two, like you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God through the sanctifying work of the spirit. In verse three, he'll say, praise be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so Peter is reminding the believers, here's what we know to be true about God. Here's what we see God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And he's reminding them of their theology, of what they believe about the saving work of Jesus. Now in verse 13, he says, therefore, because of what we believe about Jesus and because of his work on the cross, therefore, this is how we live. And Peter shifts from theology, what we believe to ethics. How do we live? Verse 13. Peter says, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ has revealed it is coming. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and your hope are in God. So how do we live as strangers in exile? And and here's what Peter says. The first thing that he says is you need to know where your hope is rooted. In verse 13, he says, therefore, because of what we believe about Jesus, because he's what he's done for us on the cross, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be revealed when Jesus returns again. Now, when Peter introduces this concept of hope, for me, there's more questions that emerge. How about you? I look at this and I go, okay, well, what is hope? And then the second one is a reflection question of, well, where is my hope? And and I think the question of what is hope is really important because we often use the word hope differently than Scripture uses hope. For us, we often culturally use the word hope as sort of wishful thinking, right? We talk about, well, I I hope that this might happen. And what we're really saying is, I, I wish that that would happen. It may or may not. I don't really know. So often the way that we just... Sort of casually use the word hope is this idea of wishful thinking. It would be nice if that happens, but we're not getting, uh, setting our hopes too high because we might be disappointed. But when scripture uses this word hope, it's really, it's not wishful thinking. When scripture uses this concept of hope, it's an assurance that God is moving and that God is working. So hope is really the assurance that God is working and moving things towards his purpose, that God is sovereign, that he's in control, and that he is sure and steadfast. So I think of like Hebrews 11, where it says, faith is being sure of what we hope for. Sure, hope, and certain of what we do not see. Hope is surrounded in in Hebrews by this idea of certainty and sureness. So when scripture talks about the idea of hope, when Peter says, set your hope on the grace, he says, we have this assurance and we know that the God who gave us new birth into a living hope, Jesus will return. And that is where the certainty and the sureness of our hope resides. And church, I want us to think about this in the context of Peter's audience. Notice how he describes them in verse 6. He says, in all this, all of what they believed, he says, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. The audience that Peter's writing to were believers who, and and this struck me, because I've read other passages where it talks about the believers suffering trials. What struck me was the grief that the believers experienced in the trials. Right? These, these were people who had been persecuted for their faith, who had been grieving that the culture around them couldn't receive them. And their message of hope is believers. They suffered grief and all kinds of trials. And Peter writes to them and he says, listen, you, you've experienced suffering. You've encountered grief. But he goes, remember that your hope is to be rooted firmly in Jesus Christ and in the grace that will be revealed when Jesus returns again. And for Peter, there's a certainty and assurance that God is still in control and moving things toward his purpose, even when their circumstances feel like they're out of control. Secondly, I think there's this question of where's our hope? And I think this question is equally as important for us because we we know intellectually as we read scripture, we know that our hope should be in Jesus. I think the reality is that for many of us, we are tempted to trust alternate sources of hope. In, In particular, I think for us in our culture, we are tempted to put hope in politics, in power, in pleasure, and in prosperity. And so I, I hear believers say things like, I have hope when, when this person or this party is in power and, and I feel kind of full of despair when this person or this party is not in power. But church, we have to recognize that our political system will always disappoint us because it's a broken system and a broken culture and a broken world that desperately needs the hope of Jesus. And so our hope cannot be in a po- politician. It cannot be in a political power structure. Those things will ultimately come apart. It is the grace of Jesus Christ that is forever. It is the grace of Jesus Christ that is eternal it is the grace of Jesus Christ that will never let us down it is a sure certainty in the grand scheme of God's design for some of us maybe it's not politics for some of us it's it's this idea of power if I can just be in control of my own life if I can call my own shots And, and I think for a lot of us we spend so much of our time and energy just trying to keep everything under our control and i don't know about you but the, the the more life i live the more i realize how little is in my control i don't control my circumstances there are things that happen there are challenges that come my way what i can control is where my hope is rooted and when my hope is rooted rightly in jesus it changes how i interact with my circumstances even when they're outside of my control for others of us it's not politics or power it's this idea of resist pain and pursue pleasure so i can just find happiness But previously, Peter has said, it's not just about happiness. He says, you've been filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy because of the work of what Jesus has done for us. And for many of us, in settling for a pursuit of pleasure, we're we're, we're aiming far too short of what God has called us to. And finally, for still others of us, we settle for this idea of prosperity. If we can just be financially secure enough to not have to worry about finances, then we can feel like we're in control and then we'll have hope. Peter goes, no, he's writing to believers who have experienced trials and sufferings. And he goes, our hope is rooted firmly in the grace of Jesus that will be revealed. It is a sure and certain hope. Now, why does this question of where hope is rooted matter so much? I think it's this idea that focus impacts our trajectory. Focus impacts our trajectory. Here's what I mean by that. Um, I'm a crazy person. Uh, I'm a road cyclist. So that means I'm one of those crazy people who wear spandex and rides a pedal bike, right? One of those people that as you drive by, you're like, why is this guy in his underwear riding a bike? right? I know we're all thinking it. I feel it too. Uh, As cyclists, we tell ourselves that it's aerodynamic, and that's how we trick ourselves into wearing it, right? Uh, So one of the things that I enjoy is riding in the Black Hills. So I have this picture of a road that probably most of us have seen. It's one of the pigtail bridges on Iron Mountain Road. And, And the reason it's so much fun to ride a bike on there is a couple reasons. Number one, when you're riding down this on a pedal bike, You can descend at 30, 40 miles an hour, which is slightly terrifying because again, I'm basically wearing my underwear. So if I go down, that hurts, right? So the goal is at least in part, don't crash while you enjoy as much speed as possible. Now, here's the thing. Uh, When you're riding on a road like this and you're navigating the turns, one of the first things that you learn when you're on a bike is that you never watch the road in front of you. Because if you watch the road in front of you, you're not aware of where the turn is headed, and and you're almost guaranteed to overcook the turn and either end up in the ditch or in the lane of oncoming traffic. And and if you ride a motorcycle, you, you understand this dynamic. When you're navigating a turn like this, you're actually looking up at the apex of the turn. And the reason is your eyes, where they're focused, the bike tends to follow where your eyes are focused right? Where you're looking, everything goes. And church, here's why I say that. I think the same principle is true of our hope. Where you are focused, where you have fixated your hope, the trajectory of your life tends to follow. And so if your hope is rooted in politics, your time, energy, resources, your stress, all of that will be focused in that arena. If your hope is rooted in something like financial prosperity, all your time, energy, resources will be focused there, and your life will follow the trajectory of your focus. And for Peter, he's saying. With minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on Christ because the trajectory of your life follows where your focus is fixed. And isn't that a weird way for Peter to say that? With minds that are alert and fully sober? I, I think what he's saying is this. He's saying, be aware and attuned to what God is doing, undistracted by the things of the world. Have a mind that is alert to the spiritual things that God is doing and working right here, right now. And so for church, church, for us as exiles, for a people whose hope is rooted in Jesus, when we step into our workplaces, when we step into our, our families, when we step into our communities and neighborhoods, and we encounter the dysfunction that's there, we step in as a redeemed people whose hope is in Jesus Christ, and our goal is to be able to point people to the hope of Christ because we step into all of those moments with minds that are alert and attuned to the reality that God is doing something transformative and redemptive in our homes, in our workplaces, in our families, in our communities. So for Peter, living as exiles, number one is about setting your hope rightly. Set your hope on the grace of God. Secondly, for Peter, this idea of how do we live in exiles is in verse 14. He says this, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Now notice that Peter begins this uh, section on holiness with the uh, command, verse 14, as obedient children, not to conform to the evil desires you used to have. Now, this is actually the second time that Peter has used that term obedience. The first time is in verse two, where he says, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ. So for Peter, this idea of obedience is about living in conformity to the life of Jesus. For Peter, this idea of living a holy life is walking conformity to the ways of Jesus, which necessarily means that we are walking out of conformity with the ways of the world. You were living according to a new culture. You were living according to a new pattern and a new way of living. Walking in obedience to the call and the cause of Christ. Can I make an assumption? It's my assumption too, but I'm going to put this on us a little bit. Let's walk through it. I I feel like sometimes we don't really like the idea of holiness. Sometimes I'm not sure I like the idea of holiness. It feels like... (sighs) sometimes when we talk about holiness, it feels like behavior modification. And, and sometimes holiness feels like I'm the person who follows all the rules and has no fun. I'm holy, right? And, and you look at it and you go, is that, is that the life we're called to? And something about it just feels off. And so I read this and I go, be holy. I'm like, ah, Peter, like they're in suffering. They're facing grief and trials and you're like live a holy life. That doesn't sound like super encouraging. That sounds like another weight that's placed on them. Like, do I have to try really hard to be holy? But for Peter, right, in the context of his letter, he's reminding them, listen, you've been set free from an empty way of life. You've been called into the fullness of life in Jesus Christ. So when he talks about uh, living a holy life, this is not just behavior modification, Peter's talking about the transformation of what the Spirit is doing in us. That we are a new, changed, transformed, redeemed people. When we talk about living a holy life, holiness is really about being set apart in worship and service to God and living like Jesus. And and if you look at the footnotes, where Peter uh, quotes the Old Testament, be holy as I am holy, he actually quotes Leviticus 11.44. And in Leviticus 11.44, it's God speaking to the people of Israel. And he says, consecrate yourselves and live a holy life. Now, that word consecrate means to fully submit and surrender one's life into. So when you consecrate yourself to God, you're saying, God, my life is yours. I'm living in full submission and surrender to you. And my life now becomes a holy instrument set apart for you. So when the ancient Israelites, when they described an item as holy... Right? They worshipped in, in the tabernacle, and then in the temple after that. In in the temple and in the tabernacle, at the very front, they had an area called the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go in there. Inside the Holy of Holies, right, they had the Ark of the Covenant, they had the lampstands, and those were things that they would describe as holy articles of worship. Right? The Ark of the Covenant was, was holy. Now, what they mean by the description of holy is that the Ark of the Covenant is set aside for God's divine purposes to use. So when we talk about our lives as being holy, this is not primarily about modifying our behavior with a list of do's and don'ts. When Peter says, be holy as I am holy, what he's saying is set your life apart for divine purposes. It says, God, my life is yours. Use me to draw people's attention to you. And I I surrender my life to you as an act of holy worship. Now, here's the other thing. We could look at this and go, well, but it still feels like this is something I have to try really hard to do But you have to keep this in the context of first peter chapter 1 verse 2 and first peter chapter 1 verse 2 He says we've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of god the father catch this He says through the sanctifying work of the spirit that word to sanctify literally means to be made holy So for Peter, he's not going, you got to try really hard not to do bad things and you got to try really hard to do good things. No, no, no. He says, surrender your life in full authority over to Jesus Christ that he can transform you from the inside out through the work of the Spirit. In verse two, Peter says, it is the work of the Spirit in you that makes you holy. The work of sanctification is the work of the Holy Spirit in us, convicting us and empowering us to live rightly. Really, it boils down to this. Peter is saying... Live out the fullness of your identity as people of God who've been redeemed and transformed and been given a new life that is in conformity to the pattern of Jesus Christ. That's why for Peter, it's about not try harder, but surrender into the work of the spirit and trust the grace of what the spirit can bring. So for Peter, living as exiles, right? He says, set your hope rightly on God. Live as a holy people where you say, my life is lived in worshipful service to God. To draw attention to the work that he's doing here. Finally, Peter says this in verse 17. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. And this is the one, man, I wrestled with all week. I looked at it and I go, why does Peter end with this idea of fearing God? And and I think for Peter, this idea of fear of God, this isn't an anxious dread of like, oh, I'm terrified of what God might do to me. Notice there's a relational closeness. He says, you call on a father... Right But this father also is a judge in your life, but church as believers, we don't fear the judgment of God because we have the blood of Christ that covers us, that makes us that makes us righteous. But for Peter, this is about recognizing the seriousness of the sacrifice of what Jesus has done for us. I, I think for some of us, we resist living a holy life. The Spirit will bring conviction about some things that we need to address. There's, uh, you know, maybe it's uh, turning in false reimbursement reports. Uh, You know, I turn in my receipts, but sure, I put gas on the company credit card. I also bought a, you know, Casey's breakfast pizza and I bought a 20 ounce Coke. And I just didn't turn in the itemized receipt, not a big deal. Everybody does it, it's company culture. Is it right? You know, I've got this uh, porn addiction nobody really knows about, it's kind of hidden. I kind of sense the Spirit saying, this has got to go, but I'm not ready to address it. Sometimes I I lie to my spouse. She doesn't really know. He doesn't really, it doesn't doesn't really affect them. It's not a big deal. And yet you sense the conviction of the Spirit. And we know there's these things that we need to deal with, but we're not ready to sort of give those things up. And then for part of us, there's this thought process that go, I mean, God is gracious. I can continue to live in sin and God will continue to just bring forgiveness, right? God is gracious. But listen to what Peter says. He says, you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially. Live out your time as as foreigners in reverent fear. Why? He says, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Right, what Peter is saying is don't take the sacrifice of Jesus flippantly. Don't take the sacrifice of Jesus less serious than it actually is. That the God of all creation, when he sees our sin, when he sees those things that are done in private, in quiet, in secret, the things that nobody else knows about, but the things that we know we need to be free from, and we rationalize it, and we justify it. God says, no, I redeemed you. I bought you back from an empty way of life. Don't treat the sacrifice of Jesus as something to be taken lightly. He didn't buy you back with gold and silver. He says, no, that's perishable. This was the blood of the very son of the God of the universe that was shed for us, and Peter goes, don't take that lightly. Live a holy life because God redeemed you, verse 18, from an empty way of living. And for too many of us, we want to go back to empty ways of living. And, and God's going, no, I redeemed you from that. I want to offer you an inexpressible and glorious joy that is only experienced in life with Jesus. And so Peter's writing to the believers and he says, listen, church, set your hope rightly. Live a holy life empowered by the spirit and live in awe of what God has done for us. So there's the 20-minute, not 20-minute, 20 20-second 20 elevator summary of all this. Living as foreigners and strangers in exile is this. With your hope fully on Jesus, live as a holy people in awe of what God has done for us in Christ. And for Peter, the reason this is so important is that the believers carry that culture, the culture of the kingdom, the culture of hope. And, and church, by the way, I think... When we find ourselves giving way to despair, that's symptomatic of our belief that we're not really sure that God is in control. But Peter writes to these believers and he goes, set your hope rightly. Live as a holy people. So as you step into culture as exiles and foreigners, the culture around you goes, there's something different about you. Why do you have hope? Inflation is high. There's global conflict. We just went through a global pandemic. Why do you have hope? I watch the way that you function differently. You, you function differently than other people. And they begin to notice the distinctiveness of a holy life that looks so out of place in a culture that doesn't value the things of holiness. And for Peter, that's it, right? It's that for us as exiles and strangers, living in awe of what God has done for us, living out a holy life and being rooted in hope, we begin to have a transformative impact on the communities that we're a part of. So here's some reflection questions that I want to leave us with. First is this, where is your hope? Is it in Jesus? Is it in politics, power, pleasure, prosperity? Where where is it really? Secondly is, uh, where is God convicting you about holy living? And finally, is, is there a place where God is calling you to take your faith more seriously? And, and I, just, I want to encourage us to just think and pray through those questions this week and do the work of saying, Lord, help me to just surrender my life more freely to the sanctifying work of your spirit. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And God, I thank you for this uh, really uh, encouraging letter of Peter that he writes to believers who are, are living at a time and a place where they feel out of sync with the, the culture around them. And Peter reminds the believers to root their hope deeply in you, to live differently in their identity as holy people, called out ones, set apart in service for you. And Father, I pray that that would be true of us today, that we would be a people who have rooted our hope deeply in you, Lord, that we can be agents of hope and transformation in our homes, in our communities, in our workplaces, in our families, that God, we would truly live as transformed exiles and thus have a transformative gospel presence where you bless us with influence. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.